I, I think the, the first stage, one of the things I write about is the first stage of ideological captivity is being convinced you would never have it. You know, that's the, that's, that's the first step in. Uh, the first step to becoming a fool in the, in the Proverbs is, is to think that you're wise in your own eyes. Um, and so that is very interesting to me because I think a lot of us walk around with a confidence about the way that we view the world. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Chris Nye is a pastor and an academic. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, and other publications. He's published three books, most recently, A Captive Mind, Christianity, Ideologies, and Staying Sane in a World Gone Mad. In this episode, Chris and I talk about ideological captivity, the writer's temptation to confirm the reader's biases, and the ways we can be consumed by the content we consume. Uh, Chris and I, I'm sure I'm glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks for making time for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. So your, uh, your book, your most recent book is called A Captive Mind. Um, you're, you're talking about the idea that, that we uh, are subject to ideological captivity, both as, as uh, well, even writers uh, can yeah. be subject to that. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you uh, about ideology and doctrine and some of these questions um, that, that, well, can entrap us. As you said, so let's let's just start with the idea of you know what do you even mean by ideological captivity? Yeah, it's it's a term I I definitely didn't invent, but have heard it and tried to just zero in on what it means. And I think if I had to put it in a simple sentence, it would be the kind of self imprisonment we put on ourselves to just take one set of ideas handed to us and kind of buy it in bulk. Um, that would be the way I'd put it in one sentence, but I think maybe for listeners, uh, the best way is to throw a few images of, of conversations that maybe we've all had before, which is, um, having a conversation with someone over coffee or a friendship that you've formed. And when they start talking, you realize they're not even talking with the words that they have developed. They're kind of regurgitating catchphrases and things they read online and, things that you've heard on the news or, or on certain social media channels. Another way I'd put it is um, you kind of can guess what people think on one subject when they tell you about another subject. So they're talking about their opinions on a certain policy or a certain uh, thing in culture. And after you get to know this person for a while, you can kind of end up guessing what they think about other things because they're so, you know, predictable is a word I, I use in the book a lot, like just a predictability to their mind that the way they think is not really thinking at all. It's just a, a mind that's kind of been beheld by uh, a prepackaged set of ideas that's floating out in the culture that's being kind of sold to them. Do you, do you mean to say that uh, once you hear a, a how they feel about one or two things and you then predict what they're going to feel about everything else. Are you saying, are you suggesting that you can accurately predict what they're going to think and feel? Um, no, not, 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 not really uh, much at all. You know, sometimes I think uh, that sometimes I think you're pleasantly surprised when you hear somebody say a, a, an opinion contrary, but I do think that those that are kind of stuck in a state of captivity um, have somewhat predictable 
responses. Mm -hmm. um, at, at one point in your book, you speak of um, uh, people who, in, in, in I say people, we need to get to this point here in a minute. Yeah. It, it's important that we not say the yeah. craziness. People yes. are crazy. The craziness is out there, but we'll we'll get to that uh, in a minute. But you talk about the idea of being chained to a way of thinking that they never developed themselves, but one that was sold through the algorithms created by consumer choices. Hmm. Right. I mean, sometimes we we have ideas we think are our ideas, and it, and then you realize actually that wasn't my idea. <laughs> that didn't that didn't bubble up from inside me somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And at some level, you know, we are all products of what we take in, and that's. Mm -hmm kind of my heart of the book is to be careful about what we are taking in and how carefully we're taking it in. And are we taking it in to help form a new thought? Another experience that I've had is talking with somebody and, um, you know, I've been a pastor for 15 years, so I have a lot of conversations and some people in my churches will start to talk about maybe how they think about something in the news or a cultural item or a policy in, in, in politics. And they'll stop and say, well, I'll, I don't really know much, but I'll send you this video I saw, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it kind of proves there hasn't been a fully formed thought there, but there's just been a response to a thought that they heard. And I, I think it's that kind of carelessness with our minds that concerns me. And it concerns me for the people that I've served in churches. Mm -hmm. um, you, you talk about the idea of having feelings about thoughts as distinct from having thoughts. Can you tell me about that? What, what do you, what do you, yeah. what do you mean when you say that? I think if I were, yeah, I was thinking about that I, um, recently, that part of my book, I think I, I, I wish I wouldn't have drawn such a clean line there because there's no such thing as really a thought without a feeling, you know, there's, mm -hmm. um, so in, in thinking more about that, I think the way I would put it is that sometimes the way we adopt a thought is simply because it makes us feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. We hear some, uh, we read some writer or we list, listen to a podcast and the way that they are talking, it makes us feel a, a certain way. And we automatically think that, you know, it makes us feel comforted. It makes us feel safe. It makes us feel like we understand the world and that's a nice feeling. And so we kind of take that thought, that writer, that idea, that YouTube channel, that podcast, and it kind of just becomes a part of who we are. But I'm not to say that, you know, um, we all have these, you know, uh, I, I would hesitate ever to say that there's any state in which a human being can be, you know, completely rational with sure. no, <laughs> no emotion at all. And so um, I've been thinking more about that part of the book and that being maybe a weakness wherein um, I could explore the depths of that a little bit more, but it's such a short book, you know, I didn't want it mm -hmm. to go on forever. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, but but still, I mean, I think it's helpful to to know the difference, and you, as we think, yeah. as we sort of assess our own ideas, to know the difference between do I have this idea, this thought, um, because it helps me to conform with a reality I didn't create, or do mm -hmm. I have this thought and this then this idea um, because it. It confirmed, as you said, you know, you didn't use the word confirmation bias, but but that's a term you could have used there. Right. Yeah. I've, I've got um, I, you know, I resonate with this podcast or this YouTube video or, or whatever, um, because it confirms what I believe 
already. Yeah. And so that so that the exchange of ideas doesn't become a means by which we get closer to uh, what's true or what's good or what's beautiful, but rather um, it it affirms what I was feeling about the world already. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think, um, not only the way, uh, I, th I think about the world already, but even, um, the way I'd like the world to be yeah, the, mm -hmm. the way I, I wish other people would think, you know, uh -huh. the way I wish other people would talk. Uh, those are tend to be the books I gravitate towards. And the things that I gravitate towards listening to is things that I think other people should read and other people should listen to. And I, I just think while that is a natural state of, of consuming, it can be a, it can be a dangerous one. And I think particularly for, for Christians, I think there's just something about Christianity that um, because we have beliefs and because we have doctrines. Um, and I think particularly as I talk with, uh, I grew up in the Catholic church. And so I think one difference between kind of Catholicism and Protestantism is Protestants tend to have an anxiety over like having the right beliefs because mm. in these right beliefs, uh, we gotta, ha gotta have the right clauses and statements and those clauses and statements can kind of affirm that we are a part of the church. Um, it wasn't so much that way when I was growing up Catholic. There's an old Catholic joke that says, you know, how do you know you're Catholic? Well, your mother was, you know, that, that's how you know, <laughs> you, know yeah. you, you don't need to say anything or do anything. Yeah. Uh, you just are it. And um, so I think inside Christian circles, there's an anxiety over having right beliefs, but we go about it um, kind of in the wrong way and try to, yeah, maybe the confirmation bias, or like I said, the bias of um, the kind of world we wish everybody was a part of, which is our little world or our, the way we think, you know, we think if everybody thought like me, or if everybody kind of read this thing that I read, um, yeah. read this article, uh, you know, really, really helped them and really, really helped the world. Well, I don't, I don't think that's really true. Do you not think the world would be a better place if more people thought like you, Chris? <laughs> no, I don't. Really? I don't. No, I don't. I don't. I think a lot of times I, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book is I was kind of frustrated with even, um, my own, um, proclivities towards thinking. Like I was, kind of thinking about my congregations that I was serving at the time, but also I was thinking about my habits and why do I gravitate towards certain things versus other things. And um, so, yeah. And often I'm a very contradictory person. You know, I, I, I have a lot of contradictions within myself, so I, I wouldn't want the rest of the world to kind of think like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, it's, it's, I, I don't, I, I'm trying to decide how to, how to, how to feel about that since it's on the subject of, of feelings about yeah. ideas. Yeah. Um, because the reason, you know, hopefully the reason we have ideas is because they're true. Yeah. Um, and um, I do think it would be better if people were more committed to what is true. Yeah. So yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. well, but maybe this is a nice segue into the, the, the question um, or the idea that you, that you address it's important that we not think in terms of, you know, it's crazy out there working on the assumption that because, you know, whatever I believe that's the norm and anything that everything else is crazy. It's maybe helpful to say the craziness is not all out there. Um, yeah. So tell me about that. I think that that came from a little bit of a pastoral impulse. Many, many pastors have this feeling when we, we preach many people comment on 
how good the message was for somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) You know, absolutely. They'll say that was such a great sermon. I took so many notes. I'm going to send it to my sister. She really needs to hear it, you know, or I'm going to, and, um, you know, like I said, that's something I've, I've done. I've sat through plenty of sermons through my life where I've thought of other people. Well, um, I think when I talk about this issue in particular, and even in writing about it, I did a little bit of writing articles and things before the book was published and kind of testing the ground of it. And so many people started to talk about, um, relatives of theirs who were watching too much Fox news or a cousin that they have that was on Twitter and got super into progressive politics. And I started the book with some of those really strong statements and even a little bit of my own journey, because I want, uh, I, I think the, the first stage, one of the things I write about is the first stage of ideological captivity is being convinced you would never have it. You know, that's the, that's, that's the first step in. Uh, the first step to becoming a fool in the in the proverbs is, is to think that you're wise in your own eyes, mm-hmm. um, and so that is very interesting to me because I think a lot of us walk around with a confidence about the way that we view the world, and so um, and I think that's a temptation for people in ministry and for writers uh, mm-hmm. who just kind of write their way into um, an audience or, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of anticipating the ways that people might think would be a good thing or a book that would sell or something like that. And, uh, that that's dangerous. And so I think it's just a good place to start, you know, where am where are we at with, with, with ideological captivity? Where am I at with it? You know, how, how am I challenging myself to kind of broaden things a little bit and, and even, um, kind of let my assumptions, um, get blown up. Mm Mm-hmm. What's an example uh, of a time that you've allowed your assumptions to get blown up? Well, I'm kind of in the process of that right now. I'm studying at Duke and um, I trained. So I grew up in the Catholic church. I trained um, at a pretty conservative evangelical seminary and uh, mentors of mine said, you know, when you go into the doctoral work, try to go to a place that's a little bit more ecumenical or mm-hmm. Or, or just broader um, of, of the world. And, and Duke has been a great fit for that. Um, but, you know, you make assumptions about other denominations, you make assumptions about other theological circles. And, um, you know, where I'm at now, I'm kind of being forced to read differently than I've ever had to read before. And so um, I think the assumptions I've made specifically about other denominations um, and even other, uh, yeah, countries, honestly, like other Mm. countries that are producing theology that is far better than Western stuff right now. You know, people Mm. uh, writing, uh, we just read a wonderful commentary by a a bishop um, in in the Democratic Republic of Congo who wrote a commentary on Jeremiah. Mm. It was phenomenal. Uh, It was filled with wonderful insights. Uh, He himself had read the Western church tradition, you know, and anyway, it's just that, that kind of stuff that really messes with the way I'll read Jeremiah forever. Um, and my assumption that I didn't really know going into it was that I had a pretty good idea of what Jeremiah was about, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that maybe the continent of Africa had a few things to offer us, but I hadn't really thought of it, but then reading that, uh, you you realize, wow, they're, they're probably going to be the leaders. Yeah. You know, they're, they're probably the leaders in, 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 in the theology of the old Testament right now, if we were to listen to them. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, I want to talk about the idea of 
you touched on this a minute ago, um, repeating or predicting slash repeating back what you think people want to hear. And we're, we're now on, we're now on, you know, concerns of writers and, and people who make creative work. Yeah. Um, it is mighty tempting um, for somebody who wants to get their stuff read, published, to get likes and retweets and all that kind of stuff. Um, it is it is really low hanging fruit <laughs> to um, to give to give into a confirmation bias, right? I mean, if, if you if you challenge the thinking of the people who are your readership, for instance. Um, you're asking for trouble. Yes. And it's much easier to give people what they want or what you think they want. Um, and you will get more likes and retweets and it's easier to get a, a book contract. Yeah. Um, so the floor is open. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I would love your your thoughts on this too, Jonathan, because um, I, I think it's an area under discussed by writers, but one that writers, uh, for for me at least, as, as somebody who's written a few books and tried to write my whole life, I'm fascinated with this because the the consumer market has changed so much in the ways that books are sold, um, and specifically in my little corner of like Christianity and pastors and who write and things like that, you know, the way that people are consuming books and are, is, is less affiliated to their denomination. And it's more affiliated to kind of these larger communities that are yeah. built online. Uh -huh. And so if you write for example, which I have before Christianity today, uh, that kind of situates you in the ideological spectrum in a kind of way. You know, I, mm -hmm. I wrote an, I actually wrote a piece recently for them. And it was funny, some of the comments that people made, not about me, not about mm -hmm. me as a writer, not about the content that I wrote. Now, that wasn't surprising. It's the internet. But they mm -hmm. wrote about where Christianity today is, is you know, um, th this article proves that Christianity today has gone liberal or has gone conservative or what, you know, yeah. making this indictment on the 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 magazine, the institution. Um, the, that, that's kind of a healthy tension that I felt with it of like thinking about how, you know, you can write more broadly maybe today and you could write across some of these institutions, but it also got me thinking about, yeah, publishing and, and, uh, how, how difficult it is to say something challenging within, um, within the published word, right. Is like, it, it, it becomes more challenging now. Pastors have an interesting facility with this because we're constantly te in tension with that with our congregations, right? Mm -hmm. We want to give a word of comfort. We also want to give a prophetic word of discomfort. Mm -hmm. So, and when you do that and how you do that is an art of pastoral ministry. So I, it would be one uh, way I would, I would suggest actually is to um, think uh, pastorly, I might say to, to my writer friends who are strictly writers and not in the ministries to kind of think that way as a shepherd, which is there are times where your writing is going to bring profound comfort. And there's times where your writing is going to have a prophetic edge to it. And I feel like the writers who maybe are always wanting to, well, usually when you want to be prophetic, you've kind of failed to do so. Or when you <laughs> want to kind of, you know, ruffle feathers, you really fail to do so. You know, the truly great writers uh, are the ones who are possessed by something. They are like overcome with something. They 
have a kind of uh, urgency or even like it can't, they, they, they can't help but not write the book. I got that advice really early on, like never write a book because you can write a book because you must. And that is a really good, you know, axiom, I think, to to live by that. And, and that then would help us not write into ideological captivity or into sales, or even for a particular publisher. I've been, you know, privileged to work for three different ones and with different books. And it's been a blast. You know, I, I think that's actually been a cool way I've been exposed to a little bit of the broad range of writing. But it's so tempting because, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I don't sell a ton of books, right? right. So I think we also have to just be aware that um, probably we have to write the books we must write and we have to not try to be prophetic. And then I, I think we also just need to be okay with not selling a ton of books. I don't think, uh, you know, everyone who sells a ton of books, usually their first one that catches them by surprise, right? And then after right. that, they have kind of this built in audience. But I think giving up the disillusionment of like writing some book that's going to be this big seller or writing this article that's going to be shared 20 million times or something. Um, that's a big, that's a big idol to kill. And I'm not saying I've killed it. I'm just, I'm just saying I, it's something I do think about. Uh-huh. Yeah. What do you think? I'm curious your thoughts on that though. Um, before I give you my thoughts, I'm, yeah. I'm going to return yeah. to the idea that you introduced that if you are trying to be prophetic, yeah. you're liable to fail. What, what do you mean by that? I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I know what you mean. I think um, those that, um, well, Ellen Davis is an Old Testament scholar at Duke who put it this way. She, she said, a lot of people attempting to be prophetic are actually attempting to be heroic, not truly mm. prophetic. Yeah, yeah. And she unpacks that to mean those that would come and um, be, be the voice of a generation or be mm-hmm. someone who could articulate, you know, for the the lowly um, and speak truth to the, to power. And that is their drive. Their, their mm-hmm. drive is actually to be this truth teller and to be this champion um, and to be, and to have a heroic nature to it. I think, I think there's something noble about being a truth teller, but some kind of nobility to it. That's like, it's going to be me who does this. Mm-hmm. And um, that just is what I mean with trying to be prophetic, just um, really working at, um, yeah, because really, really prophets, you know, uh, like I said, you know, the, the biblical ones, uh, all, all, most of them did not want to be, you know, they, mm-hmm. they were possessed yeah. by something. And um, I think some of those writers, you see that similar, um, uh, just vain to their work, like their work is just really, um, it, it seems like they, you know, it's the fire shut up in the bones of Jeremiah, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 that's a that's a helpful that a helpful formulation. Uh, is Ellen Davis? Is that Ellen Davis? Ellen yeah. Davis. Yeah, that, that people say they want to be prophetic. What they really mean is they want to be heroic. And I, I'm thinking about um, the you know the way Twitter works. You know, mm. uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, self appointed heroes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And and I even the sort of you know the 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 courage to speak out on Twitter about things, it tends to be or or if you know the, the courage to stand at an award show, for instance, and say something political. Yeah. It's pretty rare that people make a statement, a political statement at an award show that 
90% of the people in the room don't already agree with. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it feels heroic and it feels mighty. Um, and and I'm, you get a lot of congratulation from the people in the room when you, I mean, this is back to the idea that an, an idea we were talking about earlier that if all the craziness is out there and I speak against the craziness that's out there, I'm really making the people in this room with me feel pretty good because we're all on the same team. And I was using award show as an, you know, as an extreme example, but um, it, we do it all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Twitter operates that way, as you were saying. Yeah. This sort of self-selected you're, you're following people because you agree with them already. And so this echo chamber, um, this creates, well, it's it's ideological captivity, as you said. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it used to be that award shows was kind of the the venue or celebrities had this opportunity. People who were known, mm. but now we kind of all have the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you had asked me for how I what my thoughts were on something, and now I forgot what it was that we that you asked what my thoughts. Well, were. I'm just interested in the relationship this has with writers, and I know you are a writer, and you interview a lot of writers. The way that ideological captivity and the temptation we have to write into it because it gets congratulated by publishers or yeah. magazines or or even just an audience. It's a great way to find an audience if you can kind of tap into the zeitgeist around anything, right? Mm -hmm. And it's tempting as a writer to just be the, the one who wants to give a fresh articulation to an old way of thinking. Sure. So I didn't, I didn't know if you had, had, had kind of thought through that or um, even talking with writers and navigating your own life as, as a writer of like how you've navigated the temptation uh to and, and then and then the 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 discipline i think it takes to write freely or to just write yeah. you know yeah yeah well thankfully i've been i've been free from the temptations that that accompany you know writing bestsellers and that kind of stuff you know? <laughs> <laughs> um but I, I think it's really helpful to reflect on the extent to which um the ideal the ideological entrapment you're talking about is connected to um, market forces yeah. rather than um, actual belief. Mm. Um, well, I, I'm not sure I'm even saying that right, but but as you go down a um, uh, well, the way you put it, I'm, I've already read this quote, but I'm going to do it again. Um, uh, there's people can be chained to a way of thinking that they never developed themselves, but one that was sold to them through algorithms created by consumer choices. Hmm. And I, I have done a lot of thinking. And again, thankfully, I'm, I'm at this point in my life, I'm grateful that commercial success has never I mean, since I haven't starved to death, right? Since I've made it this long and haven't starved to death, I'm grateful yeah. that um, the temptations that come along with commercial success were never a part of. of um, now, I, I was certainly tempted to write toward commercial success, but when that didn't work, you know, 
I, I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't it, have it that next takes level failure. of failure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't have that next level of, of, um, uh, trying to protect a mm. large audience. I mean, you know, I, I, by, uh, no, I mean by protect is keep a large audience. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, uh, so I'm grateful to, to have been spared that, but, but the, um, the extent to which, and, and you've already touched on the idea that even um, the local church doesn't have the same kind of voice it had in its congregants compared to, you know, well, everything from broad evangelicalism as a market force, right? As the, the yes. people are reading the the books that are that are commercially successful, not even the books from their you know the people in their denomination, for instance. And I don't know right. that it's a, I'm not even, you know, it's not that I wish we were all locked into our denominational, you know. <laughs> yeah, that could be way worse. But yeah. still, uh, uh, the idea, it's worth paying attention to the truth that um, part of the reason we're all reading the same writers in, in Christian world is because of the market forces, mm-hmm. not you know, theological or moral or whatever forces. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that is, that is what just interests me because as, as writers, we become aware of that as we walk down the road of publishing, because we start to learn hard lessons. Like you say, you, you maybe try to write something for commercial success and it totally flops and you just go, well, I guess I'm not going to write for commercial success anymore. (laughs) So writers have that kind of um, edge on it. And, you know, when you're trying to get published, I think you're just interested in researching the the world of publishing. Mm-hmm. But most people don't know that, you know, m- most people just pick up a book because somebody they follow on Instagram that they respect that has 100,000 followers recommended it. Uh or so, or their Amazon algorithm said, hey, you might, based off your past purchases, you might be interested in this book. Mm-hmm. But to find the the unread stuff or the underread stuff, and and uh, you know, it, it, that comes through relationships. You know, mm-hmm. that, that comes yeah. through knowing people who read well and know good writers. And that's why I always tell people, you know, um, when they're interested in a in a subject or they're str- struggling with stuff, if they have a good pastor, which is a, a good thing, you know, it's like uh, you know, ask them, ask mm-hmm. them what to read. Don't don't go online to look for what to read, you'll probably end up getting a choice that's just based off of your past purchases. Yeah. 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 It seemed like it would be, I mean, it, it would be so easy for the algorithm writers to not push us toward the kind of polarization that they push us toward. <laughs> yeah. Right? You know, if, if you, um, if you watch a video from a particular political slant, it'd be relatively easy for the algorithm to say now, Here's right. what's recommended next is something from a different political slant instead of yeah. you want more of that. And and where yeah. you quickly find yourself, you know, uh, watching videos for how to make a Molotov cocktail. I'm, I'm, I'm making that up. <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> this has not happened to me in case you were wondering. <laughs> no, it, 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 um, it, it's why um, even just the habit of reading uh, without the internet is something I'm trying to do a lot more, which is, um, you know, reading the way we used to read probably, which is like 
the way you kind of find out about another book is through a relationship or through, you know, the, the footnotes. I, I just yeah. think that that is a wonderful trail to follow. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that most people ignore the, the end notes, you know, um, yeah. but that could be the next great book they read. Yeah. That's a, that's a reason to, to have footnotes instead of end notes too, by the way. Amen. Amen. Um, <laughs> and I, I sure miss, um, l- the library stacks. I mean, you know, the, the fact that, that you used to the inefficiency of the library stack where you had to walk past, you know, yeah. 50 books to, 50 somewhat similar books to get to the book you're looking for. Um, that was a good way to, to get an education. Um, yes. Whereas now Google takes you straight to what you're looking for. And well, even the online university searches, you know, mm-hmm. you usually takes you right to what you look for. Right. Um, they're a little bit better because they'll, you know, you can put in a couple of keywords. It'll broaden the search a bit, but it's not the same as walking down the aisle way. Yeah. Yeah. Because we assume we know what it is that we're looking to learn and we don't. Like right. if you already knew what you were looking to learn, you wouldn't need to learn. it. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so Google takes you straight to what you thought you wanted. Yes. Or e- even the university, you know, library catalog yeah. takes you more or less to what you thought you wanted. Where yeah. at, at least still in that situation, even if you found what you wanted, you still have to walk past all those other things mm-hmm. in, a, in a library. Um, and, um, but I guess that's that's such a that's maybe another way of of talking about ideological captivity. We think we know what we want to know. Yeah. And if we can just open up a little bit and say, maybe I don't know what it is that I want or need to know. Um, or maybe if I am open to the possibility that I need to conform to a reality rather than making reality conform to what I think it ought to be. Yeah. Good things can start to happen. Yes. Um, okay. You make a distinction that is perhaps counterintuitive. And I want to talk to you about it before we run out of time. And that is the idea of um, that doctrine and ideology are two different things. And also that doctrine can rescue us from, or at least loosen the grip of ideology. Um, okay. Yeah. That, that, those ideas are not self-evident. So help me out here. What, what does that mean? Yes. Um, yeah. In, in the book, it was one way, you know, you're, you're, I'm writing a book filled with ideas about the dangers of ideas. So I had to confront this, you know, yeah. it's, um, and what really helped me was thinking more about doctrine. And the distinction is that doctrine is based out of events and revelation doctrine comes because something was said to us by god we mm. it's the foundation of christian belief uh, moses and the 10 commandments christ and the sermon on the mount um these events that are also revelatory in nature produce doctrines so they're in in their very core something unique an idea um, is not really based out of an event necessarily, and it's not based out of a revelation from God. It's usually based inside of culture and the time and space with which, in which it's formed. Re- uh, doctrine comes almost outside of time. You know, that's mm-hmm. more of a Karl Barton idea. But that 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 the revelation and the doctrine and the event would be some kind of transcendent experience that 
falls into our finite human nature. That's what a doctrine ends up being. But ideas are, are almost the opposite. They kind of come from the ground up, you know? Hmm. Um, and so like, uh, yeah, like not 9-11 is not an idea, you know? Um, uh, the US Open is not an idea. These are events, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and these events uh, shape and have shaped lives and have shaped the way that we think about the world. And they've produced ideas for sure. Um, but given uh, the biblical narrative, the events that happen within there, the revelation that happened in there, it forms something completely different. It, it mm -hmm. forms something that has, and, and the last thing I'd say is the distinction is it forms something that is um, somewhat immovable over um, not just centuries, but uh, millennia. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's, that's something that the creeds give us, is mm -hmm. the creeds give us uh, a level of doctrine that has been revealed to us through events and revelation. And they are, you know, when you recite the creed, you're not reciting a, a bunch of ideas, really. There's a few of them in there, but you're reciting events. Yeah. I, I believe that Christ came, he died, he descended into hell and he rose again. And, you know, because of that, I believe in the church, the communion of the saints, you know, it's like yeah. you kind of end up building those ideas off of the events that Christianity is. The temptation I think that we're in right now is to create Christianity as an idea or, a, or sets of ideas, mm -hmm. which is something in the book that I really confront because I think Christianity is not itself an idea at all. It is the response to the events of the resurrection through which we reinterpret, you know, the whole of reality. And that's yeah. what the new Testament was trying to do. Yeah. And so <clears throat> when you say, um, I mean, it, it, you suggest at one point that doctrine, which is, you know, which is transcendent, um, as we are rooted in doctrine, maybe we can hold our ideologies a little, a little loosely. <laughs> we can be that's we, that, we can be yeah. open. You know, we, we this can, podcast we can, is uh, brought to you by receive the where disagreement. Art nourishes community um, and because community nourishes art. I, I, that's what I would hope, Jonathan. You know, I, I, I think we're, we we don't do that so much because we to learn more really, about us, again, have that kind of particular Protestant become anxiety sometimes that I've got to have the right ideas donate. about God and the right beliefs. The book is really trying to help people say, we have the doctrines. They've been handed to us across history. Um, to hold fast to those would leave us, I think, and I've experienced in my own personal life, a little bit more open, at least to engage with ideas. It is not to say that we don't hold firm convictions about any number of ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hold many firm convictions. It just means that the way in which I hold them is different because I distinct, I distinguish it from the doctrine in which I feel like I'm saved in, which mm -hmm. is the historic Christian doctrine. Um, outside of that, I, I often tell people outside of the creeds, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> Let's talk about it. You know, um, yeah. I, and, and hey, I'm still 100% willing to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus and its historical validity, all that. I'm, I'm down to talk about all the doctrines too, but I think if I can firmly hold on to that, let's let's talk about some of the hard things and the difficult issues. Um, and let's not think that those are the ones that are going to save us. Yeah. Someone already has done that. Yeah. And, and once those, once ideologies sort of get promoted to the level of doctrine, uh, yeah. the wheels come off really quickly. And are yes. coming off, right? Yes. I mean, there's, uh, it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that that the, um, you know, the the rise of ideology is happening as with the decline of of, you know, the local church. 
Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that it, again, it, 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 these ideas, they have a kind of salvific nature to them because we think if we're thinking rightly about the world and we're getting the right information that we're going to be transformed, but you know, the gospel is a big uh, refute of that, you know, that, that a big part of my, my book. And I, I say in the beginning is, is just to really sit and read in first uh, Corinthians one through three, where that's Paul's whole idea that the cross is, is foolishness mm-hmm. to many, many groups of people who are looking for various things to save them. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Chris, I always end or typically end with a question, who are the writers who make you want to write? So I'd love to hear you tell me about that. Oh yeah. Um, well, we all have those writers that uh, y- you read and you, you want to throw the book across the room because they're so good. I know mm-hmm. <laughs> I should mention those because I feel like I am indebted to those, but I don't feel like when, after I read them, I want to write, I feel like after them, I want to quit. Um, right. but that's like Augustine, yes. Marilyn Robinson, um, is a writer I have long loved. Um, yeah. a lot of, a lot of fiction makes me want to quit because I'm not a fiction writer. Rachel Cusk is a writer. I really love, um, a novelist writing okay. right now. Um, but the writers that make me want to write uh, on the theological side, I am really inspired by Fleming Rutledge. And, yeah, I love her. Um, yeah, yeah. I think because she she incorporates current events in a way that I struggle to and am afraid uh, to. And so I think yeah. she really inspires me to try to... And she's also a manuscriptor of sermons, so she's a very careful wordsmith. Um, and Catherine Sondrager, is a, she's a systematic theologian out of the University of Virginia who's okay. just... She said, you know, she waited to write her systematic theology and, and someone asked her, you know, why she's, I think she's in her sixties or seventies or something. And, and she said, uh, well, I hadn't, I hadn't prayed enough, you know? Um, yeah. and I just thought, wow, uh, her, her writing is very saturated in prayer and, um, you can tell, uh, she just uh-huh. writes from that place. So yeah, those are a few, I think, I think on the, on the non-theological side, I read people I, I want to, and I want to write as like, um. Chuck Klosterman is, is a cultural critic. I really love, you know, Christopher Hitchens. I read a lot of him, um, for how many talk about all the ideas I disagree with him on. Yeah. Right. He's just a fantastic writer and he made Uh me want to be better. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I, uh, always read whatever, whatever came across from Christopher Hitchens and was mad most of the time, but still (laughs) was, you know, I, I loved the way he made sentences. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a fantastic brain. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris and I, uh, I really am uh, glad we got to do this. Um, And uh, thank you. And I I thank you for the reminder that we need to make sure uh, that what we consume is not consuming us. So thanks for that reminder. Thanks, Jonathan. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.